the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live broadcast. Today, we'll be exploring our exciting new publication that examines the timing of surgery after SARS-CoV-2 infection. My name is Ben Morton. I'm a senior clinical lecturer and honorary consultant in critical care medicine. Um, I'm currently based in Malawi, and I'm an editor for Anesthesia. With us today, we have Joe Shimosh, uh, Dmitry Nepogodiev, and Anil Bangu, uh, who are co-authors of, of the paper. They are representatives of the NIHR Global Health Research Unit on Global Surgery, which is a collaborative team who authored this piece. This is a multi-center, multi-country prospective cohort study that examined the risk of death after surgery following an episode of SARS-CoV-2 infection. We at the journal felt that the findings are highly clinically relevant and are extremely pleased that the team has agreed to this live broadcast to discuss their findings. Welcome, Joe, Dimitri, and Anil. Um, to begin with, I'd like, um, if, if you could, to provide a brief background to yourselves and the collaborative group you are representing. Um, sh shall I start? Then I'll, I'll hand over to Joanna and Dimitri. Uh, Hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. My name is Anil. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon um, and I'm a clinician scientist in, in global surgery in the global surgery unit here. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I sit on the executive of that global surgery unit and I am also the chief investigator, the overall chief investigator for, for, the, for the COVID surge platform. Shall I pass over to Joe? Yeah, no worries. Um, so my name is Joana, I am a surgical trainee from Portugal, now a research fellow uh, in Birmingham, UK, uh, and part of this um, collaborative. So the collaborative we're representing today is in true, uh, um, um, you know, merging of different collaboratives that got together to kind of conduct and deliver this study. Um, and it's very, it's very good to be here sharing the results with you. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Dimitri. I'm a public health registrar in Birmingham, um, having done a PhD in global surgery, and I'm delighted to be here to talk about the project that we've sort of done as a big team around the world. That's fantastic. Okay, so um, to begin with, Joe, could you briefly outline why this study was conducted and what, the, what were the questions that you sought to address? Uh, sure. So this study um, came as the continuation of our previous studies, really. Um, so uh, we've um, created the COVID search collaborative uh, around one year ago, and we've started um, studying what were the outcomes in patients undergoing surgery and having a perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection. And what we've, we've what we've found out from our um, first study was that. Um, Patients undergoing surgery and having a SARS-CoV-2 infection had a, were at increased risk of mortality. So this study comes just after that, um, answering the, the research question that was left from that study, kind of understanding um, what is the optimal timing to operate patients after they had an infection. Uh, in other words, how long should we wait to operate them, uh, given that we obviously want their risk to go back to their baseline risk, if that makes sense. Fantastic. Okay. And then, Dimitri, just, just uh, going into the methodology, how did you define a time after SARS-CoV-2 infection and why? Uh, so 
we've collected data on all patients undergoing surgery. So um, the collaborators taking part identified every consecutive patient in their specialty, in their hospital, during a specific week that they would include in the study. Um, and then we've, for each of those patients, we've then categorized them as either people who um, did not have SARS-CoV-2 before surgery or somebody who was diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 infection preoperatively. And we've classified that um, according to the time between the diagnosis and the surgery. So there was sort of not to two weeks, three to four weeks, five to six weeks or, or seven plus weeks. It, there are, it is quite a difficult disease to study because it's quite difficult to determine exactly when somebody first became infected because often people are asymptomatic for a number of days before they start having symptoms and so on. So to try to standardize things as much as possible, we've um, based it on the time between positive swab result, if that was available, and surgery. And we think that's a pragmatic measure that can then be applied in clinical practice. But that said, it might potentially underestimate the duration that some patients have potentially been infected if their diagnosis was delayed. Okay, thank you very much. And just going back to Joe again, um, within the study, did you have a sense of the severity of the SARS-CoV-2 infection prior to the surgery? For example, um, were you including patients with asymptomatic infection within the study group? So for the comparison, in this study, we've included patients who had a SARS-CoV-2 infection before surgery and also patients who didn't have a SARS-CoV-2 infection to allow the comparison, as Dimitri just said. Within the patients who had a SARS-CoV-2 infection before surgery, um, some of them had an asymptomatic um, infection, some of them had a symptomatic infection. And within those with symptoms, some of them would have resolved before the time of surgery, some of them would have ongoing symptoms at the time of surgery. And what we've tried to do is to, was to analyze the outcomes for those different subgroups so we understand if um, the, the timing from infection to surgery, what are the outcomes within those groups? So we know when is safe to operate if the patient had a symptomatic or asymptomatic infection. Okay, thank you. Um, and Dimitri, um, can you just go through what the other clinically important factors that you captured within the study and how, how did you kind of adjust for these within the analysis that you've done? Yeah, so this is quite important because we know that um, generally anaesthetists and surgeons will make the decisions on when they operate on patients for a reason. So we, we knew when we began that there was likely to be some selection bias, that patients who were very sick, um, they potentially might, um, with COVID, they might only be operated if they had a surgical emergency they couldn't wait. So the patients who had, um, you know, who were coming for an elective hernia repair that had COVID, they would probably be delayed. So we knew that there was likely to be some bias in the patients who were operated soon after their COVID diagnosis were likely to be perhaps more sick patients. So we knew it was going to be important to try to adjust for this so that any difference we saw between the different time groups was because of that time difference rather than because of these confounding factors. So the factors we looked at were 
age, sex, the ASA grade, revised cardiac risk index score as a um, marker of their cardiac health, um, the urgency of the surgery, the grade of surgery, which is minor operations being things like hernia repairs and appendicectomies, skin, um, skin lesion removals, and then major surgeries being things like colectomies or hip replacements. And um, we've also looked at the um, indication, so whether that was um, for cancer surgery, trauma surgery, obstetrics. So um, what we've done is we've then had a logistic regression model where we've just factors in the model. And we've then used that regression model to create adjusted mortality rates, which are just a bit easier for everyone to interpret. So in our paper, what we've presented is um, the adjusted mortality for patients who never had SARS-CoV-2, patients at 0 to 2 weeks, 3 to 4, 5 to 6, 7 plus weeks. So you can compare those mortality rates um, quite fairly because they've been adjusted. Um, for all those other confounding factors. The other thing we did was from our model, we've looked at some subgroups. So we've taken out patients aged zero to 69 years or 70 plus years, um, and also elective emergencies, ASA one to two, ASA three to five, major minor surgery. And, and then we've created the adjusted mortality rates within each of those subgroups by timing. So what that shows you is that um, you can then look at the pattern uh, of what happens to mortality over time in each of these different subgroups and, and see whether that's consistent, which would suggest that there isn't any significant bias um, that, that might be influencing the results beyond, beyond what we've adjusted for. Thank you. It's a very clear explanation. Joanna. Um, so if you could just go through your main findings for us, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So the, the, the key findings of this study are basically that patients who undergo surgery within zero to six weeks after they had a SARS-CoV-2 infection are at increased risk of mortality. Uh, and after seven weeks from <laughs> the infection, this risk actually goes back to what would be expected to be the baseline risk for these patients if they didn't have a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So, so the, main, um, the main message is that um, waiting after seven weeks from a SARS-CoV-2 infection to perform surgery apparently is safer than doing it within the, the first six weeks of infection. Okay, <clears throat> thank you very much. And Anil, um, based on these findings, can you just kind of outline for us what were the top three recommendations that the group is making as a result of the study? Um, yeah, thank you. So firstly, you, you, the, the context of this is, is we are restarting elective surgery around the world as a group, and, and we are going to be bringing in thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients for operations, elective operations. And, and I would encourage every surgeon and anaesthetist to work together and ensure they have some form of policy 
to deal with the positive nasal swab preoperatively. And that policy, it can be written, it can be informal, depending on, on, on local practices, but it should include the following practice points. Firstly, in elective surgery, um, if there is a positive nasal swab, delay surgery for seven weeks where possible. Now, now actually, most elective surgery can be delayed for seven weeks. There are some cases where infection is beginning to set in or, 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 or there is concern about some form of, for example, necrotic event where, where you might wish to push a little bit faster. Crohn's disease might be an example. However, for most cases, including cancer, our data shows that it will be safer to wait for seven weeks. Uh, and, and that's a difficult wait for patients. We accept that. But the consequences of a pulmonary complication are very severe. That's number one. Number two is if the patient remains symptomatic at seven weeks, continue to delay for as long as is possible. In diseases like cancer, an indefinite delay is impossible, and maybe we can come you know, back to what you do with those patients later. But in principle, at seven weeks, if they're still symptomatic and you can wait, wait further. And my third recommendation is, 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 is an implementation thing, and it just goes back to work, find your stakeholders in your unit. You know, Ben, if you and I were the only surgeon and anesthetist in the unit, that's fine. We can sit down over a cup of coffee and we, we can just agree this. We don't even have to write it down. If you work in a big complex hospital with, with a thousand beds, then you probably need to set up a, a mini elective surgery task force. But what that will do is it will reduce the variation and it will prevent surgical teams. No one you know, will act. Um, people may act when they don't know what to do. So a surgeon may return a positive swab and they may just carry on with surgery, not out of malice. They might just not know about this data. So creating a policy for your hospital and your practice will help reduce the variation and will help standardise care for these patients. Back to you, Ben. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So, um, Joe, we've talked about delaying surgery for elective surgery, but what do you think the implications of this study are for patients who um, are SARS-CoV-2 positive, a recent positive result, and that they need emergency surgery? Um, what should, uh, how, how should clinicians communicate with these patients? What should we do? Um, so that's a very good question. A lot of patients will be in that position. Um, so we've we've done our analysis stratified by subgroup, including elective and emergency. And obviously, um, the message prevails the same: uh, that waiting more is safer, waiting longer is safer. Um, obviously, emergency patients can't really wait. True emergencies can't really wait weeks. Um, so I guess the main thing there would be to communicate and to inform patients about the risk and to include in informed consent um, some form of, of reference to the, the additional risk that is related to the, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, which the patients are experiencing at the time of surgery. Um, it, as Dimitri highlighted in our paper, we've chosen to um, display adjusted mortality rates for all the subgroup analysis instead of odds ratio. That might be a bit more difficult to convey to patients. Um, so within each subgroup, you have the overall mortality risk for that subgroup, 
and some confidence intervals around it. And what that allows is a surgeon to say, I have this patient here uh, to undergo uh, an emergency procedure. Um, and I know that the patient had uh, a SARS-CoV-2 infection four weeks ago. So if it's an emergency procedure, I can go to the subgroup analysis, check what is the mortality rate for that time window and convey the message to the patient and say, your mortality rate is around 3%. If you wouldn't have had an infection, uh, it would be around 1%. But this is what you need to know that is happening. And we will obviously do our best in the hospital to keep you safe. But uh, that is possible from, from the way we've displayed the data, hopefully. Yeah, just, yeah, just as a general comment from me as an intensive care consultant, uh, I think these, these types of discussions will be really, really useful to have kind of risk mitigation discussions around these decisions and for emergency patients. That was something I took from the paper. Uh, moving on, um, and Neil, um, so we, we kind of touched on this kind of semi-urgent surgery. So um, how, could how should clinicians use these data for patients who require semi-urgent surgeries? And we'll give the example of cancer surgery. It's so this is going to be a challenge around the world, um, but the evidence from this paper is quite clear that, that you will have a patient in front of you who wants their operation. And so it needs a discussion with them about delaying that surgery. And, and the recommendation generally we should be making as surgical teams is around a delay for seven weeks. Now, will all patients want that? I don't actually think many patients will want that, but when the risks are explained to them of an excess mortality from a, from a, from a, a lung infection, a pneumonia, um, I think they will understand the rationale behind that. So it does, this definitely needs to be used to inform the individual patient. Now, how you do that, if you've got an elderly patient with some breathing problems and a cancer, you probably need to push them quite hard. We know that men over the age of 70 undergoing surgery with a SARS-CoV-2 infection are at the highest risk. Equally, if you've got a young patient with an early cancer, there's no reason not to delay seven weeks in that patient. When you've got a youngish middle-aged patient who has got a borderline resectable cancer, that becomes a more difficult discussion i accept because then the the rationale is waiting that seven weeks could make a difference and that's when you need to sit with the patient and have an informed discussion and, and i don't think there's anything more we 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 can do than that um and, and i hope this evidence provides the baseline to give people the the information to have that discussion because i have faced this in my clinical practice already and it's been quite hard because we don't know what to do so I, I would encourage everyone to, to read the, the paper and especially to look at the figure. I think it's, Dimitri, is it figure one is, is sort of our headline figure? Yeah. So I, I would encourage people to go to the anesthesia website, download the PDF. This is one of those papers that, that people should really read and have a look at that figure because when, when you see the change in mortality over time and then when it comes back to normal, that is quite a powerful message. Wonderful, thank you. Back to Dimitri. So obviously we're aware of the vaccine uh, rollout program. And as time goes by, there'll be an increased proportion of patients um, who, for example, had the vaccine um, and will have an asymptomatic 
SARS-CoV-2 nasal swab. We think that the proportion of these patients will likely increase as time goes by. What implications do you think this has on the study recommendations? Um, so I think Joanna's already mentioned that um, one of the analyses that we did was to stratify the patients by their symptoms. Um, and Joanna mentioned the three groups we had were asymptomatic, symptomatic, but symptoms resolved and ongoing symptoms at time of surgery. And when you split the um, patients into these three groups, the pattern you see is the same, that weeks zero to six, they have increased mortality. Week seven is when they're, seven plus is when their mortality comes to the lowest point. Um, and, and that's true for the asymptomatic patients as well. So actually there is a significant advantage to patients with an asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 waiting seven plus weeks. Um, as it is if, if they were symptomatic. So I think this will, still, this will still hold true in the vaccine era. I think j just to mention another point uh, which supports this is that uh, I think over the last few months that some hospitals have put in protocols about taking repeat swabs from patients and operating patients after they've had a negative swab. And um, if you download the supplement, uh, and Neil's absolutely right, you should read the paper, but the supplement is also important. Um, what you might find there is the patients that had a repeat swab and that repeat swab was negative, but taken less than seven weeks after their initial diagnosis, those patients are still at increased risk. So actually, even if someone has had a repeat swab that's negative, they should still wait seven weeks or longer. So I think all the evidence shows that what really matters is not the symptoms the patients have. It's not whether they've had a repeat swab. It's, it's just it's a question of having enough time, which is at least seven weeks. But as Anil mentioned, in that special group of patients that still have symptoms going on at seven weeks, those are the patients that will benefit from waiting even longer until those symptoms uh, resolve, because they're the highest risk group of all patients with ongoing symptoms. Okay, thank you very much. So Anil, my final question. Um, what do you feel are the gaps currently in our knowledge and what future work should be conducted to address these gaps? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. You know, we're, a year, we're, we're about a year on since I think this all sadly started. And you know, at the start of that year, we questioned ourselves and people questioned us about whether this whole body of work was worthwhile. And as, as time has gone on, we've found that it definitely has been because there are, there's not just one question around surgery and COVID. It, it is a pathway. It's a pathway about um, where is it safe to provide surgery uh, and what are the features of a safe physical environment um, amongst a hospital that admits COVID patients. And then we've got questions that we've just answered, like what are the effects of a positive nasal swab? The next questions will we'll continue to unpick the perioperative pathway. So for example, you've got a patient who's had a positive nasal swab, or you've had a patient who, who develops a chest complication just after surgery. Are they at a higher risk of developing um, thrombotic events? And should they have extended prophylaxis? Um, We've then got further questions to ask around 
the concept of a COVID-free surgical pathway. We published some time ago that it, it, the best you can do is your operating theatre, ward, and critical care being free of COVID. But there are a lot of questions around that that are very burdensome. Should you self-isolate patients beforehand? Is that for two weeks? Is it for three days? Do you need to self-isolate at all if you're having a, a nasal swab when you come into hospital? Actually, asking people, again, to self-isolate for two weeks is, is, is quite hard. And, and if compliance is low with that, then it's a pointless measure. So, so we are going to continue to unpick that pathway. Um, within the operating theatres, there will be questions around, there are, there are definitely some patterns with regional and general anaesthesia that we haven't unpicked yet. And I think we'll look forward to unpicking those too. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much. So um, I'm going to wrap up there. Um, what I would say, and in complete agreement with Anil, people should read this paper. It's a fantastic paper and it's really intuitive in the way it's presented. Um, it's available free on the anesthesia website. Um, and I'd just like to thank everybody uh, for making time to, to present their paper, in which I hope will be a really usable format for, for readers and for clinicians. Uh, and, and, and the more broad public alike. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. The Anesthesia Podcast.